weird to have discovered a place and I have so many emotions about it so quickly, in, in quick succession. And then still be left feeling kind of confused about it at the end. <laughs> I can see what they're doing here. I can see what they're aiming for. But I can also see how fucking nihilistic they are. How confused they are, how lost they are. There's a lot to say, there's a lot to digest, and I'm not close to doing it. It is over, I am kind of overwhelmed, I guess. I, uh, I do have complicated feelings about this and complicated thoughts, and hopefully in time there'll, some perspective will emerge. A year ago today, the 10th of November 2016, I left Portland, Oregon, and I had been there for, I don't know, th four days, something like that, and it had been my first experience of, I think I had met hipsters before, but it had been my first experience of being in a hipster stronghold, so to speak. And I think it, it had definitely been a very interesting and baffling experience for me. I think it would be worth describing briefly that in 2006 I sort of retired from the world for a while, for a long time, because of personal problems, depression and so on. Up until then I had been living in, I'd lived in Edinburgh and then London uh, for quite a few years and so I had seen I was I was au fait with contemporary culture up till that point, and then I went home and lived there for uh, ten years or something like that. So in the meantime, a lot of things happened, a lot of things changed, and I really wasn't aware of it. I heard about things, but I wasn't in the thick of it all. And well, one of the things is smartphones emerged, and Wi-Fi emerged, and those two things are important to what I'm going to talk about in this video. Uh, but that, and then of course the other thing is just hipsterism emerged. After, I don't know when it, I don't know how, how far back it goes, but certainly in 2006 in London, it wasn't something that I was aware of. And I think it definitely took off after that, after that period and became a thing. Um, and so what happened was that I emerged from my hibernation in 2015, 2016, went over to America and was confronted with this, this new culture. I was confronted with a lot of other things in America as well, but that was one of them. And so it definitely did. I felt that I wasn't, I wasn't knowledgeable of it and I also wasn't equipped really to deal with it. To, I didn't know really what to make of it. It was as if, well, it was the, the truth that things had moved on without me and I wasn't up to speed. Um, so it was very interesting, put it that way. I, I've uh, still not really 
got to grips with it. But this video, which I'm making a year to the day since I left, is an attempt to sort of piece together what I observed and what I have observed since then uh, in hipsters. To try to put together a picture of the archetype, this social cultural archetype, which is very much off our time. I don't think it, it did or even could have existed before that, but well, before this time, before the 2000s and especially the 2010s. Now, to get into it, it used to be that people grew out of subculture uh, and rebellion sometime in, in their mid-twenties or, or before that, early twenties, and they joined the mainstream. But obviously what we see in the hipster is a new process that I don't think has really happened before, where the alternative demands acceptance by the mainstream and eventually becomes the mainstream. So you don't grow you don't grow out of it, which means that you don't, in a sense, you don't grow up. So another way to put it, what we see with the hipster is white people carrying subculture with them into their late 20s, their 30s, and even their 40s. By which time, of course, they have much more disposable income than, than you do in your late teens and early 20s. So it's a sort of post-studenthood or an extended, well, it's an extension of those attitudes that you develop as a student. But it's, it's different because you're being alternative but you're doing it without being penniless and miserable. Which, you know, that does raise the question of how, how many people actually care, have anything invested, or are committed to being alternative, if, if doing so requires being poor. I mean, it seems that once you're no longer poor, you no longer have that axe to grind against the mainstream, so you just join the mainstream. Um, anyway, that's a, a separate issue, really. What you have is people being alternative but having money to spend on being alternative. Far more than the pocket money of you know, the emo teenager or something like that. And so when you see a stronghold, a city like Portland, full of people being this way, it is, it is quite striking. There is a sense... There is a sense of it being white people just playing. And it is mostly, it's vastly a white thing. I mean, I know that there are black hipsters and all the rest of it, but it's vastly a white thing. And in its mentality, it's very white as well. And obviously there is the, there are political convictions that go along with, that are part of this culture. But generally speaking, it's an extremely, it's, it's a fun-seeking culture. It's a culture of sensation-seeking. But it's also, and well, here are some of the things that I observed, some of the things that I saw, and this is these are examples of white people just playing. You've got something like uh, um, the Crowler machine, which I saw in a boutique, I don't know what you'd call it, like a, a boutique off-license, where they were selling all these, and the fridges are full of all these different kinds of drinks that you can buy, and each one has all the different varieties of it. Um... And the Crowler machine is for when you buy craft beer, they actually put it in the can and the can is sealed and the label is, you know, I think, affixed to it by this machine. And that's something I, I'd never seen that before, something like that. There is this 
you see it also with the muesli bars in Whole Foods, where it's all these different types of muesli, and then all different types of nuts and and oats, things like that. Endless variety. And and it, there is always that sense that the consumer is just getting whatever and exactly what he wants. <laughs> and also you've got things like plastic binding for the cans, which I'd never seen before. It's a small thing. It's, it's always these small things, and yet they add up because there are so many of them, and they're so omnipresent. You've got this thing that the... the, the you see, if you get two cans or three cans of something, they've got this plastic binding that is fixed to them to keep them together, to hold them together. So it's another piece of convenience. So I'm not against, I'm not uh, decrying that, but it's just interesting. And then there's also the huge, a huge part of it is the small local producers. Craft beers would be an example of that, but it, it goes for other types of consumer products as well. There's this huge sense of decentralization. Like they don't rely, it's not, you're no longer relying on big corporations to funnel this stuff down to you through a vertical structure. It's now a decentralized network which makes use of various services in order to get something horizontally from the craft beer uh, distillery to the the consumer, which again is very new. And also it it's kind of nice. It's um there's this sense of honesty and intimacy to it, I suppose. Uh, to move on, I mean, all of this, what it all adds up to is white luxury. And again, it is, it is definitely, some people will be watching this who are not familiar with my channel, and they might be shocked that I'm talking about this as a white thing, but I'm absolutely convinced that it, this hipster, hipster culture is vastly a white thing. So you've got basically the best of everything. Taste, flavour, endless varieties of, of those sensations. Nutrition, it, that's another thing. The food is good quality. It's not... All right, I'll, and there's also great variety. And also, there's another aspect to this, standards of morality in the production of food and drink and everything else as well. So it's the best of everything. The taste, the nutrition, the range, and the ethics of how it was produced. So you, it's an extremely sort of pernickety, fickle, middle-class attitude that is encouraged and served by this new culture. The variety is worth just emphasising in and of itself. There is perpetual sensation-seeking by the hipster because there is just so much choice. But of course, that leads to dissatisfaction because it is all just choice, endless choice, without any necessity and without any meaning. So it's it's not authentic. It's just, it's just one of many options, whichever one you chose. So there's no, yeah, there's no depth to it. There's no meaning to it, which I think is part of why hipsters seem so dissatisfied, perpetually dissatisfied with the perpetual um, well, freedom they have. Of course, another part of that dissatisfaction is the atomization that this, well, this endless luxury produces, that it causes. Because all of this freedom then becomes a, a sort of obsession. 
which distances you from other people. You're no longer bound to other people by necessity or common uh, cause. You're now all just consumers in the same space, essentially competing uh, by way of your choices as to what to consume. Having said all of that, because what I've said all sounds quite selfish, one thing I did see in Portland that I hadn't seen, uh, well, I didn't see so much elsewhere in America. Bear in mind, I was only on the, the West Coast and then the East Coast. But one thing I did see a lot of was young white couples with children. And frankly, you don't see a lot of that anywhere. I mean, I live in Europe and you don't see it a lot here uh, nowadays. It's very depressing. But something I did see that I, I, it struck me very quickly in Portland was how many of these young hipster couples, and some of them are not so young, they're you know in their mid or late 30s, or even in their 40s. But you see them with, with children, which seems to be, nowadays, that, that's very... I know that white people are still having children, but there's something about... It, it just seemed unique, in fact. Perhaps, perhaps it's to do with the confidence that comes when you have a culture, um, and yet you're also grown up. I think that fertility is probably encouraged by a sense of security, a sense that you are going somewhere and that you are attached to something that is reliable, a culture, in other words. But nowadays, a lot of white people do not have that because national cultures have dissolved, religious cultures have dissolved, and so they are sort of adrift and they don't have that sense of security. But I think that hipsters do. This is something, I mean, it's, it's a very paradoxical thing. On the one hand, they're very insecure and their culture is very unstable. Hipsterism is an innately unstable. And yet at the same time, it is something to plug into uh, vehemently. And I think that alone perhaps give, gives them a sense of confidence such that they then feel safe reproducing and bringing kids into this situation. Um, but it is a dysfunctional culture. And I'm going to go into that now. I'm afraid that the rest of this video will be fairly negative. But I, I want so before I go into that, I want to say first that there is beauty in this, the in, how to, I, I don't know how to how to put this. There was something very touching about seeing this, as I say, hipster stronghold, because there was a there was so much. There's the luxury. There's also a very white, well-meaningness about it. That they are trying to be good, they are trying to build something. There's a certain innocence to it, even though it's very bitter. So, yeah, and there was also just the fun of it, the endless variety. But the other part of it is the refusal to grow up. There's a lot of, and that perhaps is embodied by the fact that there's a lot of nostalgia. There was one shop that I went into that was full of uh, sweets, candies from childhood, from different eras. I think somehow they'd brought them back in some way. Um, another place was a video game arcade which specialised in video games from the 80s. Now, on the one hand, 
that's great. It's really fun. And I wanted to go in it. The play, the, the day we visited, it happened to be shut, which I was disappointed by. But when you've got too much of this stuff, this nostalgia for previous eras in your life, especially your childhood, obviously there is a danger of that being morbid and gangrenous and uh, unhealthy. And yet there's so much of it. You know, it's definitely a part of it. And I know I'm, I'm sort of contradicting myself, but on the one hand saying that they are having kids, that they are reproducing, and on the other hand saying that they are remaining kids themselves, but, you know, it is a complex thing. Now, on the other part of that I wanted to mention is just the logistical, the material comfort that is um, embodied in all of this and exemplified by it, which, of course, is the result of logistical genius that we have that we have reached in the West. There is always a sense of, well, why not? Why not do this? Why not try that that combination? In the video from a year ago, I was talking, I had this set of matches from some, I think it was a craft, like, it was some person who'd thought of infusing vodka with chili. And I don't know if that's ever been done before. <laughs> Maybe it has. But I've never heard of it before. And it does seem very hipsterish to think, oh, well, here are two things. I may as well just combine them and see what happens. And you see that all over the place in Portland, that kind of thing. This endless curiosity about different possibilities and a sort of an attitude of, well, why not just try it? Let's, let's see how it goes. It is a it is a sort of whiteopia, without a shadow of a doubt. There's a sense that if white people could just work everything else out, this is what they would deserve at the end of it. In a way, they would deserve this this endless, boundless possibility. But in our age, and in our circumstances, it's not like that. It's not. There are serious problems with it, and it is a dysfunctional culture. Um, so the first thing I'm going to talk about is the lack of gender roles. Now, again, this is this is another effect of material prosperity and logistical success, is that you end up being able to detach people from natural sex roles. Or let's put it this way, gender roles. I'm talking about culture. Um, women don't need to be female or, well, feminine, womanly, or mothers, of course. And men don't have to be masculine, and they don't have to become fathers. And all of that, you get a huge amount of dysfunction stemming from that alone. But I think the main thing is, in a way a society can bear, it can still survive women not being feminine, because in the end they'll they'll do what is required of them. They will just... Um, they will bend, because that is female nature. But what a society can't really withstand is men not being masculine, because ultimately it, it all relies on men being men and doing their carrying out their role. And part of carrying out that role is having those characteristics that enable you to, ful to fulfil that role. So in our age, men are feminised, and especially in especially hipster men. And uh, one thing that exemplifies this is, unfortunately, the obsession with ethical ethics 
and ethical sourcing of food. It's not quite right, I think, for men to be obsessing over things like that. For men to be concerned with such fiddly, but also and daily, ethical priorities. Men should not be concerned with that kind of thing. Men should be concerned with abstractions and long-term goals and building towards long-term goals. It is not manly to be concerned only with the here and now, or and certainly to be obsessed with it and the ethics, the rights and wrongs of it. That is the stuff of church ladies and, uh, well, nowadays SJWs, I guess, but that's a bad example because SJWs are a very unhealthy manifestation of this. But nonetheless, men should not be concerned with this stuff. They, start, they shouldn't be obsessed with it. That is the place of women in society, to maintain morality at the day-to-day -day level. Uh, men should set the rules, but women should be the ones who maintain those rules. And so what you've got with hipsters is this obsession with that sort of thing, ethics, but also trivial things. Like, is this the right type of soy milk for me to be drinking this month, this year? That kind of thing. Uh, again, it's just not manly. And I'm not even talking not even talking about the milk. I'm talking about the worrying about which type. <laughs> no, that, that is not how men should be. But at the same time, because this thing about ethical food, ethical production, it's easy to make fun of hipsters for that kind of thing. But at the same time, and as I said in the video a year ago, why shouldn't we care about things being ethically done? And it is, the hipster perhaps takes this or exemplifies it more than most of us. And I think maybe that embarrasses us because we see ourselves in it. Because in the end, we do care about whether things are ethically done or not. And uh, there's no reason not to. It is, again, it's a very white thing to do. And that is why our societies are the way they are, because we do care about ethics and morality. <clears throat> But when we see this in the hipsters, we tend to think, ah, well, this is because they're doing this out of insecurity. They're doing this because they don't have a stable culture. And so they're, it's part of their need for a culture. So they're sort of overcompensating. And this gets us to the question of authenticity. Do they have a stable culture? Because if they did, maybe they wouldn't be so well, fickle about things. Maybe they wouldn't be so anal about things. A great big part of the hipster thing is this search for authenticity. But since they don't want to settle on any one particular culture, because that would be exclusivist and limiting, and it would put an end to their freedom, their endless questing, they don't want to settle on any one particular culture, so they go for a patchwork of cultures. Eclecticism. But eclecticism is the opposite of authenticity. It's a weird thing. You'd think it would be obvious, but I don't think it actually is in practice. If you want to be authentic, you cannot at the same time be eclectic. It really is one or the other. Either you choose one culture and its roots, its history, or you're an epicure just sampling different cultures and really not caring about their roots, in which case you're not being authentic at all. You're not respecting the authenticity of those different cultures. 
You're just using them for street cred, plaudits, sensation-seeking, something like that, but you're definitely not being authentic. Another aspect to this is nihilism. And this gets us back to the refusal to grow up, because that's a huge part of nihilism in, in our age, what I call small-end nihilism. There is unwillingness to grow up, exemplified in the ways I've described, but also an unwillingness to preserve their society, or their race, for sure. Which, again, is this brings us to the issue of detachment, detachment from things that they really should care about. Hipsters do care about some things, as I've said already, and they probably do want to preserve their society. But it's very much that detached, left-wing, idealistic vision of preserving society, which is to say it's, a, it's an endeavour that will actually destroy their society because they're not concentrating on, well, the crucial things and the deep things. It's all very well wanting your food to be ethically sourced and all that. But what if you, for example, don't perform the role that is required of you by your biology and by your society, by your culture, by your fellows? Then you're working against any harmony ever emerging and any you know, the continuance of your society as well as your people is threatened by that, fundamentally threatened by it. <clears throat> but I guess... In a way, progressivism does this. It tells you, don't care about that, care about this other thing instead. And the other thing should be cared about, but it's something comparatively trivial. So, you end up with nihilism. Now, another way to look at all of this is that hipsterism epitomizes the process of the alternative becoming the mainstream. In a sense... There is no mainstream anymore. And that goes not just for Portland, Oregon, but the whole world, the whole of the West. Uh, it used to be that people there was a mainstream culture. Now everything is becoming, in a way, we're all becoming like hipsters. We just, we pick and choose. Or we just have a subcul we, one subculture. So in a sense, there is no mainstream culture in Portland, Oregon. But in another sense, there absolutely is a mainstream culture in Portland, Oregon, and it is hipsterism. The crucial thing, though, is that this mainstream culture hasn't undergone the refinement and improvement process that occurs when a mainstream culture develops. And when it grows organically over time and it has this distillation period. Or, in rare cases, when a mainstream culture is consciously selected and implemented and promoted, then again, it will be consciously improved. With hipsterism, you've, that has entirely leapfrogged either of those processes and simply asserted itself as the dominant mainstream culture. So, well, what you've got then is an alternative culture that has dethroned conventions from the mainstream and simply seized dominance. So it never underwent trial and error or refinement. And so, you end up with a dysfunctional mainstream culture that despite its claims to ethical standards and despite how fun it is in, in the here and now, ultimately messes people up. And I'll go into that. Um, 
it's exemplified. I'm going to talk about two different strands of this progressivism and individualism. But first, I'm going to give an anecdote from somebody that I met in Portland. He was talking about dating as a hipster. And he said that the attitude is, it's all the same to me. Like when you're on a date with some hipster girl, her attitude is, it doesn't matter to her whether you end up together or you're a one night stand or you never meet again. It's all the same to her. And so then you, as the guy, you end up defensively mirroring that attitude so as not to get hurt and so as not to appear um, insecure. Because, you know, what's worse than a, a, an insecure guy? Because And then vulnerability looks like weakness. So the result is two people ostensibly courting in the process of trying to get along together and seeing how well they can get along together, instead repelling each other and uh, rejecting each other by default. So you have no warmth, no rapport, no kindness, no relationship, and maybe sex, maybe a one-night stand, or maybe not even that. So this is the the result of that culture. This is how it actually plays out. The I mean the main uh, <laughs> you could say the prime duty of any culture is to ensure that the men and women who partake in that culture are helped to uh, get to know each other and pair bond. And yet, what we seem to have with hipsterism is a culture that doesn't do that. It, it actually works against that happening in many ways. And this is fascinating. Um, that One of the problems is, and it's not surprising that there is no warmth here, because warmth in itself, vulnerability looks like weakness, but also warmth. If you are warm to somebody, then you are open to them, you are being open to them. And so that in itself can be seen as a sign of weakness, because it's like you're looking for their approval. You're certainly making yourself vulnerable to their rejecting you. But the other thing is that there is no basis for warmth between two hipsters, because there are no conventions or traditions that they share together. There is the culture of hipsterism, but the nature of, of that culture is that it is eclectic. And so there is very little to build upon. There is very little that you can take for granted about another hipster. What conventions or traditions do they uh, follow? Do they believe in? It, it's a complete lottery. So this, so this lack of warmth is fascinating. This. The stultified situation is fascinating because as hipsters, they do actually have something in common, values. And we are told nowadays by advocates of multiculturalism, uh, multiracialism and so on, that common values are what bind a community together and enable people to get along and are actually what form a culture. Yet these hipsters are atomized from each other in the face of these common values that they do hold. And I think that what, I mean, 
I think that what this demonstrates is that common values are actually not enough for people to get along together and might not even be a prerequisite for people getting along together. So not just not sufficient but a necessary condition, but actually neither sufficient nor a necessary condition. It's possible that common values, because certainly in this case, you've got people who have common values, and yet there is still atomization from each other. And I think this goes, by the way, not just for two hipsters on a date together. I think it also goes for that whole just hipsters socializing together. You see this uncertainty. You see this distance between them in their body language. And it's really quite striking. But this thing about common values not being enough, it gets much more pertinent when we consider the particular value sets that hipsters hold. Progressivism and individualism. Now bear in mind that progressives today tend to invest a huge amount of faith in progressivism. And also individualists today invest a huge amount of faith in individualism. Well, from the example of hipsters, we can see that progressive values do not lead to a cohesive, happy, functional community or contented individuals. And we can also see that individualism does not lead to a cohesive, happy, functional community or contented individuals. The progressivism, since it is an obsessive form of virtue signalling, ends up alienating one progressive from another because they are set against each other, competing to be more progressive than each other and also suspicious that this person or that person is not as progressive as they claim to be. Progressivism also promotes selfishness. And um, this is something that, again, is paradoxical. You'd think that progressivism is all about caring and so on. But actually, as much as it is ostensibly about caring, it's also a creed that promotes self-absorption and self-obsession, obsession with one's needs, my pronouns and so on, and also one's goodness and one's goodness levels. And that self-obsession naturally alienates you from your fellows especially if they are are similarly self-obsessed. Progressivism also encourages you, the progressive, to see other people as purely political entities, since it values identity politics more than it values individuals or identities, for that matter. And this again alienates you from your fellows. And then there's individualism, the other strand of this, which I think is very, you know, if you're talking about two strands that make up hipsterism, it's progressivism and individualism. So individualism leads, as progressivism does, but for different reasons, to selfishness. I think it's fairly self-explanatory how that happens. And then that leads to alienation. But individualism also leads you to see other people as accessories and fashion items, which th- and that requires you to place yourself above your accessories. 
and also to demonize these people that you are using as accessories. And both of those syndromes will lead to alienation. So you've got all these things going on all at once that basically lock people into a course that will lead them to alienation from each other. Even while they hold the same values and follow the same culture, that's not enough. They're, they're set against each other in a multitude of different ways. So you've got a very dysfunctional culture. And unfortunately, society is too weak to fight this culture. It's too weak to fight the dysfunction. And it's not just, of course, there's dysfunction elsewhere. It's not just in hipsterism. But in this, we're talking about hipsterism here. And society is too weak to reject this, to fight against it and encourage people to live more in more healthy ways together. So I guess the real question, and this was something that occurred to me in Portland, is how long can this last? This, what, what is on the one hand whiteopia, this fun, interesting, uh, stimulating culture, but on the other hand is, is nihilistic and dysfunctional? How long can it last? And I think the answer is, it will last for as long as the money lasts. I don't think that there's anything internal to white culture that will make hipsterism stop. Because I think, in fact, that hipsterism is the natural result of the last few decades of white culture. So much success. Material success cultural success or cultural expansion building, let's say, and especially technological success, which enables people to live in these ways. So if it is the natural result of all that, then how is, it, how is there going to be some kind of you know, sharp turn away from it? It's not going to happen. And certainly the forces that exist in white society that have facilitated hipsterism are not going to suddenly turn against it and start working to, to dismantle it. That there's just no way that that's going to happen. But the most, the most of all, it relies on material prosperity, and that I think is is the the Achilles' heel here, because material prosperity is not going to last. It never does, and in our age, we seem to be heading for a big fall in this regard. And I wonder. Are the hipsters aware that this is essentially their last chance? This is their twilight. This is the last time that white people are going to be this, this luxury, this comfortable. And I don't know how long it will be until the next time, uh, but these are the last days of it. These are the last years of it. And maybe that awareness, maybe there is instinctual awareness of this, on the part of hipsters, that their their days are limited, their days are numbered. It cannot go on forever. And so maybe they're trying to make the best of it, or maybe this is why there's so much try-hardery among the hipster, uh, among the hipster community, I should say. It, I do think, I do think that they are waiting for some kind of cataclysm, because another aspect of hipsterism is that it doesn't really point to anything. It does, it does uh, espouse the progressive values, but ultimately it's not a culture that has anything in mind beyond 
what it currently has, what like the way we live right now in Portland. Do they have some vision for fifty years from now, a hundred years from now? Absolutely not. The the only vision would be more people like us living as we're living right now. So that's not a vision for the future. That's just a vision for an endless present, which of course cannot happen. So I think they're waiting for some sort of cataclysm to end all of this. I think that's sort of built into it. There's this element of despair or resignation built into hipsterism. And in the meantime, they twiddle their thumbs, seeking ever more sensations. Now, in conclusion, wherever white people go, they create culture. They can't help themselves. They are endlessly fascinated and curious. And and they want to help each other uh, at some level. They want to help anyone. And they want to build things. They want something to be proud of. And so they can't help but create culture. However, when white people are middle class, they have tremendous insecurity about their culture, which is both uh, prospective and retrospective. They build cultures that they will be insecure about. And they, and then retrospectively, they become insecure about their cultures when they become middle class. And as insecure people, the middle class make the mistakes of the paranoid and and insecure. But all of this, and I think I've, hopefully I've listed enough mistakes in order to justify that statement. But all of this is a result of having the luxury to be insecure or to be middle class. The working class and the aristocracy don't have that luxury. They have to just get on with things and be sensible, have their heads screwed on for the long term. So, hipsterism is the ideal middle class culture. Materialistic, yet moralistic. Worldly, yet lost and confused. Atheistic, yet preachy. Superior, yet insecure. Inferior, yet smug. Detached, yet desperate. Knowing and bitter, yet innocent and fragile. And that's life in the West at the start of the 21st century. Thank you for watching.